I hear the metaphor of ski slope a lot, and I think it's a good one. Now, we ski down the ruts, and these ruts in the slope form, and that we tend to do the same things over and over again, which is, I think, it's not great for happiness. I think new experiences sometimes make us happy. I think it's not good for creativity because you lose sight of different ways to solve a problem. So I like to try to ski down as many different ways as possible and try to almost create a snowstorm so that all of the tracks are covered up and you can create something totally new. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Here's today's question Why is developing a puzzle mindset? the key to influence. Now, a few years ago, I developed what you could call a bit of an obsession. It started out pretty innocently and then became an addiction like all addictions, began to expand into more and more corners of my life. And that obsession was the world of puzzling. Sudoku, crosswords, picture wits. If you're not sure what that is, beware that rabbit hole. Train tracks, word finders, you name it, I had to solve it. Now, perhaps it could have been a reaction to the pandemic, to all the countless facets of life and the world that I just couldn't begin to solve. Or maybe it just gave me something I was missing, a safe space to channel both my curiosity and a very restless mind. And to be honest, I thought I was completely alone in my addiction until I came across a book from my guest today. That book was called The Puzzler. One man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life. Needless to say, I was totally hooked. AJ Jacobs is a best-selling author, journalist and human guinea pig. He has written four bestsellers, including The Year of Living Biblically, for which he followed all of the rules of the Bible as literally as possible. And thanks a thousand for which he went around the world. This is amazing. He traveled around the world and thanked every single person who had even the smallest role to play in making his morning cup of coffee. He has given four TED Talks with a combined viewing of over 10 million views. He also regularly contributes to NPR and the New York Times. And he was also once, perhaps most importantly, the answer to number one down in the New York Times crossword puzzle. Still not sure what puzzles have to do with influence? Believe me, it will all become clear. In this conversation, we puzzle out why he has always considered himself to be a human guinea pig and how developing an experimental mindset has completely changed the trajectory of his life. Why every challenge we face is a puzzle, essentially, and how by consciously approaching it and talking about it that way, we can tap into unlimited amounts of curiosity, energy, and enthusiasm. 
why the best advice he ever received as a parent was, don't get furious, get curious. How to start using the language of curiosity with our families and our teams. You know, I've started doing it with my family since this conversation, and it has been amazing to watch how a six-year-old's eyes completely light up when you use the phrase, let's solve this puzzle together, rather than the words problem or task or any of the other language we use around challenges. Why puzzles teach us to embrace the struggle and release our attachment to immediately having an answer or finding a solution, thereby improving both our patience and our grit. And finally, a beautiful tradition called generational puzzles, which is essentially a puzzle that's passed down from generation to generation because no one person can solve it alone. And how that thinking can be applied to how we face some of the world's greatest challenges. This conversation will twist your brain and hopefully leave you in a place where you can better approach the puzzles in your own life. There are a few riddles that he poses, some puzzles that he poses. And for those of you who don't have the patience to puzzle them out or you don't have a pen and paper handy, you can find all of the answers plus a heap of extra resources in the show notes. Just hop on. They are all there. For me, now I know when I approach anything in my life, goals, conflict, confusion, if I can frame it as a puzzle to solve, I immediately start asking better questions. You know, what are the constraints? How long do I have? What resources can I call on? What are the available clues? What assumptions am I making? And that shift, that shift from powerless to puzzled usually holds the key to moving forward. Now, for those of you who are ready to take your journey in influence to the next level, do not forget, hop on my website or the show notes, there's a link in there, and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and also the seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your own level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to make a cup of tea. On that note, sit back coffee up, cycle on and enjoy the puzzler himself, AJ Jacobs. Welcome to the podcast, AJ Jacobs. So good to have you here. Delighted to be here, Julie. My wife is named Julie, so you, uh, I already have good feelings towards all Julie. I'm in good lineage here. Yeah, exactly. And I almost got a music recital before we, before we <laughs> You could still effort, do so. it. <laughs> if, the, if your listeners demand it. He will play the fife and questions about what a, what a fife is later. We may end up going there. Um, all right. I want to start the way that I usually start the podcast. And that is asking if there's one thing, one, one idea, one piece of knowledge that's really having an impact on you at the moment, because I find, especially with a mind like yours, people who are at the edge of what their, of their field of expertise usually discover things before the rest of us. So is there one thing that's just stuck in your brain that you're thinking a lot about? Well, I don't think that I'm the first to discover this, but I, I'm obsessed with uh, curiosity. That is my favorite drive. Curiosity and gratitude, I would say, are my two favorite human drives or emotions. So one of the one of my mottos that I think about a lot is uh, is don't get furious, get curious. And uh, I heard it actually from 
a child psychologist because I watched some webinar on how to be a parent during the pandemic and and they said when you're dealing with your kids don't get cur don't get furious get curious when they're throwing a tantrum you know try to figure out what's really going on and how can you make it better instead of getting angry yourself but i've started to apply it to every part of my life and it's especially helpful in this time when we are in such a culture divide so if I'm talking to someone from the other side of the spectrum, politically or ideologically, it's so easy to get angry. I mean, that is sort of my default mode. It's like, how can you believe that? What kind of idiot are you? But that doesn't solve, that makes your life miserable. It's not going to convince them to change their mind. So instead, it, to me, the key is curiosity. Ask, treat it as like a mystery why do we disagree? What can we do about it? What can we, why do I believe what I believe? Why does she believe what she believes? And is there any way to go forward? Is there any evidence that can change one of our minds? If not, what can we do? Uh, and that has made my life a lot better. And there's, you know, there's a gap there. And I'm just, I'm just feeling into this. There's almost a gap, you know, you don't get furious, get curious. The ability to be able, I don't know, is it a breath? Is it when you feel it come because it's, you know, you can feel it coming up. You can feel yourself stopping listening to what someone is saying and starting to rehearse what you're going to say next. Like there are triggers, right? Before you open your mouth and the torrent comes out. Um, what, what have you learned about just creating that gap? Is it a breath? Is it a paying attention to triggers? Because for me, when I lose it, I've lost track of that <laughs> somehow. Like it's just stimulus response. How do we create more of that? Gap? Great question, and I don't have all the answers because you know I'm certainly not perfect. But partly it's just being aware of the stimulus and response. And there's a quote. Um, I, I've, and it's not clear who said it first. And I can't even remember the exact quote, but he said it was something along the lines of freedom exists in that space between stimulus and response. So it is like being aware of the stimulus and like not going to your first response, just taking it in, thinking about it. And I also think I think of a lot about the word trigger, which I think is a is a problematic word uh, because trigger implies that you have no control like someone presses your trigger and you're going to explode like so let's let's try to reframe you know it is it is an annoyance it is something offensive perhaps but it is not preordained that you have to have a certain reaction to it so that to me is uh it's all part of the being curious not furious mm, i interviewed daryl davis a while ago who's a um, black man, I think he's in his 40s now, ex-jazz musician, and he is known for, I'm not going to say converting people out of the KKK because that's the wrong language, but getting so deeply curious about their experience that a conversation somehow begins across a divide that for most people that divide is just unfathomable. And as a result of conversing with him, you know, a number, I don't know the exact number now, but it's, you know, in the tens of people have left the KKK 
Wow. Voluntarily. Because all he, he didn't try to convert. He didn't try to convince. All he did is just invited them into a conversation and sat in a deep, deep place of curiosity. Tell me why, like, why do you feel the way that you feel? How did, how did that come to be? What does, you know, how does that feel like to you? How does that change your life experience? And through that process of curiosity, something amazing happens. I love that. I'm going to have to listen. What's his name? It's, I'll listen to that episode. That's the one I haven't heard. Daryl Davis, if you haven't listened. Yeah, Daryl Davis, just the most incredible human being. That is remarkable, yeah. Um, I know you like to consider yourself or have been considered, I'm not sure where it started, as a, as a human guinea pig. And you know, I've always believed that one of the largest keys to influence is having what I have heard called a, an experimental mindset. You know, being willing to try on new behaviors, being willing to try on new points of view, new language, and try it on for size and just go, look, will this help me connect with other people? Will this help me collaborate at a high level? Will this help me spread my message or my idea at a faster rate? And it feels like that just comes so easily to you. You know, this experimental mindset, this mindset of curiosity. Has it always been that way? Has it always come really easily to you? Well, two things. First of all, um, that was going to be my big ending when I'm on a stage giving people. <laughs> so now I have to think of something different. So, uh, so yeah. Um, I'll ask a different question. Don't no, worry. no, that's good. Okay, good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Give me a Or maybe I can repeat it. Maybe people will have forgotten by then. But um, second, I am a huge fan of the experimental mindset. I'm an evangelist for it. I, I love it. Um, third point, I guess I said I only had two, but third point is it doesn't come naturally. I think it's, it's like a lot of things. It's a practice. It's like gratitude. You really have to work at it um, because what's natural is to stay in our ruts and do the same thing over and over again and uh, not push ourselves out of the comfort zone. But I think the benefits are just huge. And, um, as you know, from my books, I have done, you know, I sort of take it to the extreme and do these radical experiments like uh, thanking a thousand people who had anything to do with my morning cup of coffee from the farmer to the barista to the uh, logo designer to the biologist who came up with the coffee strain, etc., etc. But but my what I usually talk about is you don't have to go that far, you know, especially if you don't have a book contract, there's no reason to do that. Um, <laughs> but there, the, the impetus is probably less. Yeah. Um, but you can still uh, experiment in smaller ways that are just as meaningful. And whether that means, you know, thanking 10 people who had something to do with your cup of coffee or spending a week not gossiping or going vegetarian for a week and see what see what it feels like because yeah we really get you know i the i hear the metaphor of ski slope a lot and i think it's a valid it's a good one how we we ski down the ruts and these ruts in the slope form and that uh and we we tend to do the same things over and over again which is, I think, it's not great for happiness. I think new experiences sometimes make us happy. I think it's not good for creativity because you, you lose sight of different ways to solve a problem. So 
I like to try to ski down as many different ways as possible. Try and try to, you know, almost uh, create a a snowstorm so that all of the tracks are covered up and you can create something totally new. And there's, there's an energy to it as well, isn't there? Like if you, I know for me, if I'm looking at a big project or a big challenge, you know, sometimes the idea of it is just overwhelming and you, you're, you're kind of like, oh my goodness, you know, these are all the things that could go wrong and I'm going to have to do this and I'm going to have to do this. And there's something about flipping your mindset into, okay, well, let's run it as an experiment. Let's, what would a 30-day experiment look like? What would a 60-day, what would a five-day experiment look like? And all of a sudden, it's like these gateways open and this rush of energy comes through of, okay, well, if I was going to run a five-day experiment, then I would, I would do this. And if I'm going to run a 30-day experiment, then this is what it would look like. I wonder if that's because suddenly maybe there's parameters around it where we go, all right, if it's an experiment, like a 1,000 people, okay. Is the, is the key that there's clear parameters that our minds can't get carried, can't go global with the whole thing. There's a parameter to the challenge. I am a huge fan of structured creativity. And uh, I mean, it's actually how I try to structure all my books. So for instance, one of my books was about how I read the Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z when Encyclopedia still existed. Uh, I remember. I remember well. Yeah. Now you can't read the Wikipedia to, from A to Z because more is created every second than you can read. Uh, but but I was able to structure the book, chapter A, chapter B, chapter C, and give the highlights of those chapters and how they fit into my life. And that having those constraints, I, I think uh, I've heard of constraints lead to creativity. Uh, so it's sort of this paradox. And another thing I like about the experimental mindset is that you're giving yourself permission to fail. It's an experiment. You know, sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. In fact, I love the original meaning of the word essay, I believe, and I think it was from Montaigne. It was one of the French writers who coined it, and it means to a try, an attempt. And so when I write an essay... Uh, that is what I try to think because it lowers the, it, it, it really lowers the pressure. I'm not saying I'm, this is the great American uh, uh, disquisition uh, that will answer all the questions. It's a try. It's an attempt. I'm going to see where it goes and uh, give it a shot. And I love that. I think that's a much better mindset. And I feel like you, re you mean, you treat your, you, you approach your books from a place of, of puzzles, you know, where? I've, I've heard you speak before about how you structure your books. You know, you treat the whole thing as, as a puzzle, as an experiment. You know, how could I put this in a form um, that's going to bring it to life in the, in the most spectacular way? Um, and I want to go there. I want to go into puzzles for a second because obviously, you know, your latest book, The Puzzler, I've, I've been obsessed with puzzles. I wasn't going to say my entire life, but the last few years, I think maybe it was COVID, I don't know. I became obsessed with first Sudoku and then crosswords. And then my dad and I, as a way of connection, because he lives in England, he now, <laughs> he scans for me the puzzles out of his newspaper every week and emails them to me. Wow, that's and nice. And we kind of we do it. We do this particular kind of puzzle called a picture wit, which I've spent two years trying to master. Still have no clue. Rely on my dad for the answers every week. But there's something about puzzles that have added something immeasurable to my life in, in strange and weird and wonderful ways. 
which is what led me led me to your book. What do you feel, and I have my own ideas about this, but what do you feel above and beyond entertainment, you know, puzzles, why are puzzles so valuable, meaningful, or important to our lives? Well, I, first of all, I love that you've gotten into puzzles, and I'm going to have to look up picture wit. I don't know what that is. Is it like sort of pictionary? I was going to buy, and I'm going to send you a book. Okay. A I love it. Book. I'm going to hang it on. Uh, well, one one advantage I think is what you just said. It's just a wonderful way to connect with others. I mean, the stereotype is that you're doing these crosswords alone in the corner, but actually much more often, I think you're collaborating, you're talking to people. Uh, and uh, especially during COVID, it was just a great way to connect. The Wordle craze, I don't know, are you a Wordler? Do you know that? Do you know what? I barely, it's an app, right? It is. Uh, yeah, it's on the New York Times barely. and it just became huge in the United States. Uh, it's died down a little, but it's, a, you know, a word guessing game. But but I remember listening to the guy who invented it, who told me, you know, he gets letters. Um, he got a letter from a guy who uh, who who was a gay man, but his parents were very conservative. And the only thing they could talk about without getting into a fight was Wordle is like a way to really bond. And from there, they were able to build up a relationship. So I love that. Um, I also just think it's, it cultivates creative, I mean, curiosity and creativity, uh, which I think is crucial. But it also, I think, helps us think in new ways. You know, the, the cliche is think outside the box. And I actually feel okay saying that cliche because it came from a puzzle. Uh, if you don't know, you know the puzzle. It's got. I, I, I've heard you say it before. I heard you say it in an interview once that it came from a puzzle, and I was like, really? Yeah. That makes so much sense. It's a classic puzzle. It's got it's nine dots on a page in a square, and the puzzle is: Can you connect all of the dots in four lines? I think it was four or three lines. And the only way to do it is to draw the lines so they go way outside the box and then make them diagonal. Otherwise, you can't do it if you're trying to stay within the box. And so I think there's a lot to that cliche. Like They teach you how to break boundaries and come up with new solutions, which is you know, how we came up with the mRNA vaccine. You know, That is a, a new way to think about vaccines. So seeing life as a series of puzzles and trying to think creatively about them. I love, I love that way. And in fact, one of my favorite quotes is from Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones says uh, that he doesn't have problems. He has puzzles that he sees the series, his life as a series of puzzles. So it's a, you know, uh, when he has an obstacle, instead of being dispirited and overwhelmed, He's like, all right, let's roll up our sleeves and figure out how to solve this puzzle. Maybe it'll be fun. There's such an incredible framing tool there. You know, I was just thinking about that couple that you were talking about who couldn't agree on anything, but suddenly by using the frame of a puzzle, can we, can we figure this out together? Can we puzzle this out together? You go from across the table to sitting next to each other at the table, looking at something outside of your relationship and then using that as a place to start going, okay, these other things that we potentially disagree about, can we treat those as puzzles? Can we take them outside of our relationship and look at them together? 
and see if we can puzzle this out. There's just, and as a parent as well, to, you know, you have your children come to, you've got teenagers, I've got young children, you know, constantly, mama, I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. And to use that language, you know, oh, that's a really interesting puzzle. Let's puzzle this out together. You know, just would be a game changer for a young mind to wire that in really deep. Yeah. Well, I love, that's exactly right. To me, it is a great reframing and something like, you know, my kids, um, take twice as long to do their homework because they've got their phone and their friends are texting. And I, I say, you know, do you acknowledge this is, this is a puzzle like that it would be a lot better (laughs) if you didn't look at texts while doing your homework? Puzzle with an obvious answer, but a puzzle nonetheless. (laughs) But what can we do together? Like, because if I unilaterally say, give me your phone, they're going to be angry. They're going to be, they're probably not going to, they're going to be so angry they'll like procrastinate on purpose and not get their homework done. But if I say, you know, what if, let's figure out this puzzle together. What's a solution that we can both agree on? Maybe it's like, you know, they give it to me for 10 minutes and then they get to look at it for one minute or whatever. So that is still a puzzle, by the way, that we're working through. We have not solved that puzzle, (laughs) 100%. But, you know, there are plenty of other parental child puzzles that that you can solve together. I find it much better to try to collaborate on a solution than imposing a solution. Uh, I mean, sometimes you have to impose a solution. You can't, you know, there are limits. But you're right. There is something about imposing where you get a natural level of pushback. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's our natural inclination it's when we feel like a course of action is imposed upon us to either resist or push back. Whereas if you can collaborate on a puzzle together, on solving a puzzle, that again, it just brings with it an energy, a collaboration. Um, also, I also think something else to it. And as I said, I'm addicted to Sudoku at the moment. And to the point where Valentine's Day was a couple of days ago and my husband literally said to me, he was like, do you, do you think you can put, like it's Valentine's Day evening, the children are in bed. Do you think you could put your Sudoku down? That would, that would, that would be great. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, I'm like, oh, I'm sure, sure, I'm sure. Yeah, okay, yeah, putting the Sudoku down. But there's something about, and I, I noticed, and I think it's after looking into your work, I started to notice that there's this little mantra that goes on in the back of my head when I'm doing Sudoku. And it's like I'm doing kind of the four out of four difficulty at the moment. Ooh. And I don't know if that's as hard as it gets, but in the little book that I have, that's as hard as it gets in the book. And I've just got this little mantra that goes, you know, okay, where there's a will, there's a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. And there's something intensely comforting about knowing that there's a solution. There is a solution. Right. And knowing that it's possible to find it and just going, okay, I will, you know, I'm just going to put in the time, run some experiments where there's a will, there's a way. How do we expand that? Because I'm not that good at doing that in other areas of my life. Sure. Tell you that right now. You know, coming at problems where there's, where there's a will, there's a way. Calm. (laughs) But for some reason, I can manage it with Sudoku and I don't know if it's, the odds that there's not as much at stake. How do we expand that out? That, that pleasure that we get from puzzles, how do we get that same pleasure in life? 
Well, I will say, I mean, puzzles are sort of the platonic ideal because they have a single solution. And you, if you have the will, you will get there. And life is a lot messier. So, but I still think if you can visualize life as a series of puzzles, acknowledging there's not going to be one perfect solution. There are going to be a lot of different solutions. Some are better than others. Part of the puzzle is figuring out which is the best solution. So where there's a will, there's several ways. Uh, and <laughs> so we are going to try to find it. And um, uh, yeah, so I, I do that. Uh, I think it is, it is a great way to look at, you know, marriage is a, a big puzzle. Like, um, Maybe there was another way you could have done. Maybe there was a, a Sudoku that you and your husband could have done together, a, a Valentine's Day-themed uh, puzzle that you could have done together. Do you know what? We, we have tried. We have tried to do Sudokus together. And unfortunately, <laughs> That's not a... we both get... He, he, he has had to go, like, completely cold turkey on Sudoku. Oh, really? We tried it for one week. I said, you got to try this. It's so, you know, it's so good. It's so good for my brain. And he did it for one week and he said, no, I become obsessive. I don't need anything else in my life <laughs> to be obsessive about. <laughs> I can't do it. So he's gone cold turkey. On Fair enough. To it's, it. Yes, there is a danger. But I will say another advantage that we've sort of touched on, but I think puzzles are a great team building event. And I know that... Your, some of your business is, is events and uh, organizing events. And that, to me, is a great, whether it's going to an escape room or, my, if I can plug, my wonderful wife's business is called Watson Adventures. Watson, and they put on scavenger hunts where people, for corporations, and either online or in person, and they work together to solve a, a mystery and what's good about it, I think, in any of these is that you're using different strengths of different team members. So maybe one of them, like you, is brilliant at Sudoku. Maybe one's better at pattern recognition or, you know, or doing physical things where you have to fit a, you know, a, uh, a pipe into a hole or whatever. It's everyone can find something that they're good at and that that to me is what great teamwork is about, is finding out what your specialty is and contributing that to the team. I have to say when the, when the whole escape room phenomenon began, I don't know if you've done an escape room. I'm assuming oh, you, sure. have done, you have done escape rooms. Yeah. I tried to find someone to go with me and I asked four or five different friends, including my husband, and it was a, no, you're on your own with that. <laughs> you're completely on. So I still, you haven't gone? I still have not. Oh, if you were in New York, we would go to one together. Let me tell you my oh, two okay. favorite escape room facts that I found while researching my book on puzzles. One is that it's very popular in the nudist community, the naturalist community, because... I don't quite know where to take my brain. <laughs> well, uh, if you think about it, like this, but it's, it makes sense because they can't go to a movie theater and take off their clothes or a bowling alley. But True. if they go into a room and close the door and there are, you know, 10 of them and they all agree to take off their clothes, then it's a perfect uh, activity. So there's one. And the second one is uh, that I interviewed all these escape room owners 
And it turns out that almost all of them have this guy who comes uh, every week with a new girl, a new woman, I should say, uh, on a date and pretends, so this guy will pretend it's his first time doing that escape room and so that he can show off how brilliant he is at solving Sudokus. And if, I guess that's a turn on, so it, it works. But, you know, there's dozens of guys around the country doing the same trick. I don't know if it's been published anywhere, but that was, uh, yes, that's using puzzles for uh, for ill instead of good. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or for, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he ends up getting married. Well, there you life. go. Maybe the puzzle with... Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm all for puzzles on a date. It's just being open about, oh, I happen to have done this escape room 82 times. I hope that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, someone's going to get suspicious when you solve it in under 30 seconds, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, he probably has to be an actor. It's like, oh, this is hard. This is hard. I wonder what it is. Yeah, that's, it. that's when it gets into extra layers, layers of deception <laughs> um i want you to talk, to talk to me about cryptos it's one of the great unsolved puzzles uh in the world and it is at the cia headquarters in virginia in the united states and it is uh, a sculpture that is i think it's about 35 years old now and it was created by this mad genius sculptor who teamed up with a cryptographer and they made the sculpture as like a wall of metal, but into it they printed uh, thousands of letters and symbols. And these are um, a code. And the idea is to figure out what, what do these say. Now, people have solved a lot of the code, but not all of it. There is a portion that remains unsolved. And what I love and what I think is instructive is that it's been over 30 years, but I'm on this this uh, email list uh, where there are thousands of people who every day are still working on this code, like thinking, well, maybe the secret is it's you know related to Moby Dick. Maybe it has something to do with the Bible. Maybe it is, you know, they've got all every day. There's a new theory, uh, but I love the. Uh, the sort of the lesson and in, in grit fortitude and just you know i when i'm helping my kids with their math homework i'm tempted to give up after like 45 seconds like i don't know <laughs> so so i try to remind myself you know these people have been going for 30 years on this one puzzle and uh and i actually went there to the headquarters of the cia and it was funny because i i asked them what what should I look for? And I got all sorts of secret missions. You know, look, look at the grass, the pattern of the grass, or look at, you know, the way is the whirlpool going left or, you know, clockwise or counterclockwise. I had, I had all of these. Uh, I, don't, I don't think, well, I don't want to ruin uh, and give away any spoilers, but I will say I, I didn't solve it for sure uh, or at all. <laughs> I mean, I love that it's in the CIA building. Is, is, is there a more perfect place for an unsolvable puzzle to sit right. than, you know, inside the CIA compound? And I also love what you said about, about grit there, because when I, first, when I first read that story, 
it got me thinking about, you know, something here around human fulfillment, right? Like I, I read a quote a while ago that was saying, you know, if you want a full life, an incredible life, do not focus on the things that make you happy. Focus on the things that you're willing to struggle for. Not suffer for, but struggle for. Because the things you're willing to struggle for, they will make you happy because you're, you're enjoying the struggle of pursuit as opposed to, you know, I, if I do this, I have to be happy every moment of the day while I'm doing it. Is there, is there something in puzzles that can help us to learn to enjoy the pursuit, learn to enjoy the struggle of the experiment as opposed to, you know, I don't have the answer, I'm out, <laughs> which I'm the same as you with homework. I don't have the answer, I'm out. Ask your dad. I would say yes. I would, in fact, um, I once met the this man uh, who's known as the godfather of Sudoku. Uh, he died actually recently after, but he is, so he is like, you know, responsible for a lot of hours of your own struggle and enjoyment. Of my life, yeah. yes. Uh, and actually, Sudoku appeared uh, in an American magazine, um, and it was called Number Place, but it was a pretty much the same game. No one really paid attention, but this guy, Makikaji, a Japanese publisher, noticed it, and he changed the name first. He changed it to Sudoku, which is just a it's a much more interesting name. It means bachelor number because each number is uh, alone in their little uh, square. And and he made a couple of s small changes um, and then published it and that took off. So that's why he's called the godfather of Sudoku. He didn't invent it, but he made it a phenomenon. And he came to speak uh, in New York and I went to it and he drew on the whiteboard. He doesn't speak a lot of English, but he drew on the whiteboard on three symbols. So he drew um, a question mark and then an arrow pointing forward and then an exclamation point. And he said, this, well, this is puzzles in a nutshell. So you've got the, uh, the question mark where you get the puzzle and you're like, what is going on? And the arrow is the struggle, the journey, the experiment, trying things out. And then the exclamation point is the aha moment when you when it all clicks and you see the solution. But his point was you got to enjoy the arrow because you may never get to that exclamation point. You've got and I actually think an arrow is a good uh, symbol, but a better symbol would be an arrow that goes in curly cues all over the place because it's never going to be a straight line to the solution. You're just going to have to follow all sorts of uh, paths. And uh, and Mr. Kaji was also a um, uh, a mountain climber. He he actually he said he liked sort of gentle mountains, not like uh, really. And he said, you know, that that the key is not about getting to the top. It's about enjoying the journey and i just thought it was a lovely thought as sort of a more creative way to say you got to enjoy the journey not just the destination mm. and also the the kind of the micro micro macro of it you know there's there's the the puzzle you're doing on your lounge room floor and then there's the greater puzzle of life the, the greater puzzle of, of how to live how to love how to be um 
you know, it's it applies all the way through the human experience from, from the very small to the what comes next of the final transition. You know, um, to, to bring it back into more concrete terms, I was interviewing this is incredible woman. You would love her. Her name's Maz Farrelly, Marion Farrelly, and she was the creator of X Factor. You know, the show. Oh, X-Factor, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the X Factor. She also created Big Brother. Oh, wow. She's like the queen of coming up with ideas that just get massive traction, massive cut through. And she was saying she gets called into a lot of shows to kind of that are, that are struggling and failing. And she said, you know, the the people that she sees succeed in her profession are the ones that have a high level of curiosity, who enjoy the failing show, because that's where it's exciting, right? That's where you get to run some experiments. You get to try some things, you get to see what's going to happen. She said that the number one billboard shows, she said, are kind of boring because you just turn up to work, rinse and repeat, turn up to work, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And she said, and unless you're able to inhabit that mind frame of being excited by the challenge, then you're never going to get to the top yeah. of the game because you don't love the roads. And if you don't love the road, eventually you're just going to leave the road. Right. Step off. Yeah, I love that. That is interesting. When do you give up a puzzle? Because that's another thing that hit me. That's a great question. Which was, I have a little rule in my head, which is I'm allowed to stop one puzzle halfway through and and attempt another one, but I'm not allowed to stop that one and attempt another one. I can do the one I'm on or I can go back to the one that I kind of gave up on, but I can't go forward until I've I've done it. So that's a little rule of mine. I have no idea that it means anything bigger than that, but it got me thinking about when do you when when does the mental energy that it takes to try and solve a problem either in life or in a puzzle just become a false economy yes. like you're better off just leaving it moving I love place. that question because yes there is the phrase never give up but sometimes that's terrible advice sometimes you want to give up because sometimes either maybe it is one of those few problems with just no good solution, or maybe it is, like you said, the pain and suffering is is not going to, is not no longer enjoyable pain and suffering. It's not like a fun, challenging pain and suffering. It's just genuine pain and suffering. And I will say we gave up on one puzzle. Uh, I bought what was then the largest jigsaw puzzle in the world. It was about 45,000 pieces, and it would take up about like a half a tennis court, maybe. Um, But it was... I have so many logistical questions about this, but I'll leave. Well, yeah, so, uh, yeah, we didn't... I'd have to move to another apartment. That was another problem. Uh, So we started doing it, and we did... It was a bunch of cities, uh, like scenes from uh, cities around the world, and we did, I think, London. Um, But then... But the... But it wasn't a particularly interesting puzzle. It wasn't like there's lots of twists and turns. It was just a lot of rote, a lot of sort of tedium, like, you know, putting putting in the the work without the fun aha moments. And so we're like, well, we can either continue and do this another 40 times and spend thousands of hours on this so that I can put it in my book or we can move on to puzzles that prove that look like they're going to be a lot more challenging and interesting and fun so I left it there and I feel fine that I never finished that puzzle 
Um, and I do think that that is an, an important thing to assess in life and in any project. You know, I have, for instance, I worked on another book for three months uh, right before this book, and I was so miserable. I didn't, I wasn't having a good time. And I said to my publisher, I just, uh, can I switch to something about what I, puzzles, which I love, and I think it'll be a more fun book. Um, and so I had to, you know, it was a hard decision, but I'm glad I made that. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you, I knew that there was a book that you were writing that you stopped in order to, in order to write this book. And I was going to see whether that felt like, you know, a puzzle that you just needed to let go it was no longer energizing you to find the solution to the question was no longer giving you any energy and you were better off pursuing something that was energy inducing. What was, what was the book? Like, what was the book that you were writing? Well, it was, I still think it's an interesting idea for a book and maybe someday I'll go back to it. Uh, it was all about the problem of truth and how we, um, how it's gotten worse and we seem to be in this post-truth era where no one trusts science and you know what uh, and you've got two different realities on the right and left and so my approach was uh, I was going to try to fact check everything in my life including those things that I just thought I knew for sure like how do I know the world is round how do I know my wife loves me she says she loves me but I'm not in her mind how do I know that the New York Times is more reliable than Fox News? And uh, so it was a sort of a deep dive into epistemology. And I am still fascinated with it. But I was miserable for a couple of reasons. One, you know, it is such an all-encompassing uh, topic that I was just getting lost and over my head. Two, I wasn't sure that my end product was going to make the world better because my end pro my my general thesis is there is such a thing as truth and uh it's hard and but science can help us get there science is not perfect it can be biased it can be corrupt it can be mistaken but it but it's that experimental mindset where you say you know being willing to be wrong and correcting yourself like that to me is what truth is about trying to be open about well we made a mistake here let let's try this way but anyway i wasn't sure that message was going to come across i was worried the message that would come across was like oh my god this is so hard let's just give up there is no truth like it's all competing narratives it, uh, who knows if the world is flat so i was like i don't know if this is gonna... so it was a very hard decision because, you know, the publisher was excited about it. But I was, my gut said it, it was not good for me and it was not necessarily good for the world. So try to do something. And I had, I love puzzles like you. And I'm like, I think I could make a book out of puzzles because I think they're more than just a trivial pursuit. Like, I think that they are very important as a way to look at life. And uh, the publisher was like, okay, let's try it. So I am very glad, yes, I gave up on that, trying to solve that puzzle of how to make that work. I'd be, I'd be very interested if you go back to that puzzle. I can see why that would feel like a heavy, 
a heavy load to unpack. Yeah. That particular, that particular question. I'm still thinking about it all the time as a, you know, as a puzzle. It is a puzzle. How do we get past mm. this, this, you know, uh, this chasm where people have totally different views of what reality is? And I don't know the answer. I don't have a, a great answer, but it is a, a fascinating puzzle. I want to go back to puzzles for a second. And I'm wondering if there's a puzzle that you could share, um, a puzzle or a riddle that you can that you can share with us that potentially maybe I'll put the answer in the show notes. People can have a think about, sure. you know, actually explore this experimental puzzle mindset that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, why don't I give a couple that have and we'll we'll talk through the answer and then I'll give one maybe that that you have to check your website just so I don't get people yelling at me um, <laughs> for being uh, for not giving the answer. How about, I mean, I, I am a huge fan of what are called lateral thinking puzzles that you might have heard of. Those are the ones that are like, um, you know, a man is lying face down in a field and there's an unopened backpack next to him. What happened? Uh, and the answer is you have to think lateral. You have to think, well, the backpack is not just a normal backpack. Oh, it's a a parachute backpack so he like you know jumped out and his parachute failed to open um another lateral thinking puzzle would be uh there are two girls in a classroom sitting next to each other they are um, they were born the same day the same month the same year to the same mother but they are not twins what's going on the same day in the same month to the same mother but they are exactly. not exactly what is going on there. Okay. So now you have to step back. I have absolutely no All right. Idea. Well, let me give you one hint. Like, let's look at the um, one way to solve puzzles like this is just to go in deep on the words. So the same mother, same day, same year, but they're not twins. Well, what is twins? Twins are when there are two people born on the same day but is there anything else that could be going on oh they were triplets or quadruplets or quintuplets but yes exactly you got it so it's sort of breaking it down or sometimes turning things upside down so let me give you this this uh another lateral thinking puzzle but there's a guy in a room the room is four concrete walls um, and a ceiling. The ceiling does have a skylight in it. Uh, the floor is the is made of dirt. It's a dirt floor, and he has he does have a uh, shovel. So he starts digging, but he knows that he can't dig his way out of this because it is you know the the walls go down a hundred feet. So he's well aware he can't dig his way out of it. So what is he doing? Why is he digging a hole? All right. Now, remember what I said, sometimes it helps to think upside down, think backwards in the reverse. So he is, he is digging a hole, but what else is he doing? When you dig a hole, what else, what is sort of the opposite of what he's, he is building 
a mound of exactly. earth to get him out. See, you got these. Nicely done. All right, let's do one. Let's do one and not give the answer. All right. Well, another one I like is um, are, are called ditloids, and it's a type of puzzle where uh, you give a number and then a couple of letters, and it's a hint to a phrase. It'll make sense when I explain. Give an example. Fifty-two. Uh, w in a Y. So I'm only going to give you the first letter of each of those words, but 52 W in a Y. So 52 weeks in a year. 52 weeks in a year. So let me give you two, and then we'll give a couple for the listeners to solve at home. So let's see. Off the top of my head, like 14 D and an F. 14 D and an F. 14 days in a fortnight. That's so fast. How did you do that so fast? Let, all right, now a couple for the folks at home. How about um, 8 A on an O. 8 A on an O might be one. And uh, I'll do another 52. 52, 52 C and a D. 52 C and a D. C and a D? Yes, yeah, C is in Charlie. C in a D in as a in David. D. All right. Well, we're going to put the answers to those in the show notes. You want to puzzle over that? Anyone that's listening, you want to puzzle over that for the rest of the day? Um, I just, I want to, I want to flip just before I let you go. There was, there's a term I really want to get into. Um, and that is the idea of generational puzzles that you talk oh, about. Oh, yes. Which is passing. Passing puzzles from passing puzzles that have not been solved from generation to generation, and just because I think that you know it's a beautiful thing to think about first in the idea of, of a puzzle. You know, my my dad passes puzzles to me, and and we do them together. Um, but also, I think on a, in a global context, there's something really interesting about framing, defining, and communicating generational puzzles. So what, define it for me. What is a generational puzzle? Yes, it's, it's exactly what you said. It's a puzzle that is so hard or so time-consuming that one person in their lifetime cannot solve it. And you have to hand it down to your descendants, and they have to hand it down to their descendants. And I love it. It's like an heirloom, but an interactive heirloom. And these puzzles are usually what are called... Um, you know, exponential puzzles that they are. Uh, uh, for instance, there's a puzzle called the Chinese ring puzzle. It's also called the patience puzzle because it takes a lot of patience. And if you have three rings and you have to put them on a bar, if you have three rings, it only takes, I'm making this up, it only takes like seven moves. But if you go up to 10 rings, it takes like something like 300 moves. So it gets exponentially harder the more rings yeah so once you get up to a 50 ring puzzle it takes like billions maybe trillions of moves um so one person cannot do it in their lifetime and uh and i actually sort of as the the climax to the book as i commissioned this brilliant dutch puzzle designer to create the hardest puzzle in the world and it's a puzzle that would take 53 quintillion moves to solve which is uh basically the 
the universe will will fade to dark before you are able to solve it. So it's it's an impossible puzzle, but it's also a lovely heirloom, a hand-me-down that I can give to my kids, and then, then they can make, like, even if it's just 10 moves per generation, uh, you're still making some headway. And it's just, I love it too, because I think when, uh, that we don't give enough thought to our descendants. Uh, you know, we, we do sometimes think about our ancestors, but what about our descendants? I mean, they are, uh, the Native Americans have a lovely, uh, some of them have a lovely, uh, uh, motto of, you know, think in seven generations, like how is what you're going to do affect seven generations? And we can see it, you know, in the environment, we can see it in nuclear war, we can see it in all of these big transgenerational problems. Uh, so this is just a reminder to me, this crazy looking puzzle, uh, this it's a reminder of the, the billions of people to come. It's also in some way, I'm getting a real sense of, it's almost an antidote to the current kind of hustle culture. You know, we've got we to solve this fast. You've got to make a ton of money quick. You've got to, um, you know, you got to get this done. And there's something about stepping back and going, you know, this is, I'm going to make a contribution here. I'm going to make a contribution to this puzzle and that's going to be enough. I'm going to do my very best and that's going to be enough. And the next generation, they're going to make a contribution to this puzzle too. And I remember seeing Obama interviewed after he left office and they were asking him about, you know, how did he feel about his legacy? And he said, you know, honestly, if you look at the, the trajectory of time since, you know, the Roman era and leaders that have tried to make, you know, make a change or they've made a slight change that lasted, you know, a little while, but it changed mindset just enough to allow the next person to come in and they shifted something just so slightly. They put a bunch of things in and they all got, you know, taken away again after they left, but they changes, changed the perception of things just enough for the next. And if you look at yourself in the context of a timeline, it's just a, a far more relaxed position to be in because my job is only just a shifting enough to allow room for the next to come through. I love that. What's well, a what a wonderful way. I love the way you say that and the way Obama said it. And and it's and it goes back to what Mr. Kanji said about you know the arrow like we are never going to get to the exclamation point for a lot of these really hard problems, but mm -hmm. we can be a part of the arrow. We can enjoy being a part of the arrow. We can we can um enjoy the pursuit exactly now just my last question i know i used up my last question at the beginning so okay. <laughs> i'll come up with something else i'm, I'm going to scramble for something else um i love the subtitle of your book which was one man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life and when i read that i thought wow that's that's a big jump from crosswords <laughs> to the meaning of life <laughs> that's a massive jump it is um do you feel any closer? I mean, you've spent, you've gone down this rabbit hole now, and I'm sure you'll, you'll stay there in various ways. Do, do you feel even an increment closer to the answer to that? Well, I think uh, it relates to a lot of what we've talked about in this these past this past hour, which is that 
maybe the meaning of life is all about curiosity and the quest to find the meaning of life. Sounds a little flippant and uh, almost like a um, tautology, but I, I actually believe it, that what, what gives my life meaning is sort of the quest to find meaning and the quest to solve puzzles, the quest to solve puzzles of how to be the best parent I can, the quest to be the best husband I can. So yes, uh, I don't have the full answer of the meaning of life. Uh, I don't think it's 42, like Douglas Adams says in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but I do think there is something to the idea of that we can derive a lot of meaning in our quest for meaning. Mm, I love that. AJ, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm going to take this whole puzzler's mindset with me in and how I parent, how I lead. I'm going to find a place to put it on my desk. That's how. That's so nice. Well, I love that you're a, a Sudokuer. Uh, and, uh, and I had just a, a blast talking to you. So thank you for having me on your show. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.